This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Earlier this week, The Atlantic released a video that showed Donald Trump uttering the five words he has refused to say for over a year. I didn't win the election. What may seem an obvious statement to any remotely sane American has nonetheless become the crux of his dangerous and destructive attempts to overturn the 2020 election. So even as former President Trump has continued to push the big lie, in reality, he knows he did not win the 2020 election. Speaking to a group of historians last summer, the former president admitted more than once to losing the race to Joe Biden. By not winning the election, But when I didn't win the election, and when the election was rigged and lost. The admission came in a video interview with a panel of historians convened by Julian Zelizer, a Princeton professor and editor of the presidency of Donald Trump, a first historical assessment. The interview was published on Monday by The Atlantic. Writing for The Atlantic, Zellerzer said Trump was the one who had decided to reach out to a group of professional historians so that we produced an accurate book. In reality, he had convened the group in the hopes that he could get them to offer a reappraisal, that his presidency was anything but a raging dumpster fire and an abject failure going down as the worst in history. This is a person before and after the presidency concerned with shaping the way that we see him and understand him. And that's what he was doing. He had read about this project. Uh, his people reached out to us and he wanted to give us his side of the story, but that's what a lot of the meeting was about, uh, him trying to persuade us, uh, which obviously isn't how we write our history, but that was his mentality about this as it's been with almost everything else. The former president called the historians assembled by Zelizer a tremendous group of people. And I think rather than being critical, I'd like to have you hear me out, which is what we're doing now and I appreciate it. And I thought if you're writing a book, it would really be nice if we had an accurate book. Trump, Zelizer wrote, seemed to want the approval of historians without any understanding of how historians gather evidence or render judgments. Zelizer also pointed out that shortly after the session with the historians, Trump announced he would give no more interviews for books about his time in office. It seems to me that meeting with authors of the ridiculous number of books being written about my very successful administration, or me, is a total waste of time, Trump said in a statement in July of 2021. These writers are often bad people who write whatever comes to their mind or fits their agenda. It has nothing to do with facts or reality. History's judgment of Donald Trump is likely to focus on two major events his response to the coronavirus pandemic. It's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle, it will disappear. And his role in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not gonna have a country anymore. Zellerzer said Trump's staff supplied the panelists with documents that portrayed him as a conventional president with a moderate record, although he issued a statement shortly after the meeting saying he would give no more interviews for books about his time in office. In the listing of American presidents, is Donald Trump gonna be at the bottom, the middle, the top? Yeah, many people believe he's closer, uh, certainly to Herbert Hoover or James Buchanan, presidents the who, are on the of bottom, the ranking. who left the country in a bad moment. And the presidency did end with the economy incredibly fragile. 
uh, and unstable. It ended with the pandemic raging, and it ended with a country more divided and united from when he started. If you had to give him a grade, what would it be? I don't think that a presidency that ends without a peaceful transfer of power can be considered anything other than a failure because of Donald Trump's culpability in that moment. This is vintage Donald Trump, folks. Some toxic combination of delusion and narcissism made him believe that he could convene a panel of this country's most esteemed historians and he would be able to charm them into loving Donald Trump. It shows that he is concerned that his legacy for future generations will be relegated to the toilet bowl of history. The radical left Democrats put America last and that's where they intend to keep you. They want to put us last. And nobody understands why. What the hell are they doing? Nobody really understands. It's like, do they love our country? Maybe they don't love our country. The only way you can do the things, they're not stupid. The only way you can do what they're doing is you have to hate our country. Historians will record this period of American history as a catastrophic low point and a stain upon our once great reputation. It's stained. But we'll get rid of that stain. Predict that in the long run, Donald J. Trump will be relegated to the bottom tier of American presidents. Jeffrey Engel of Southern Methodist University. Donald Trump has a unique distinction. It's the only president who refused to honor democracy. Stop and think about that sentence. It makes my mouth say, how can you say these words? Uh, and yet, I don't think they're wrong. Trump, during the interview with Zelizer, also said the real story about the January 6th Capitol insurrection has yet to be written. He recalled how he had given a presidential speech to a peaceful rally claiming left-wing infiltrators caused the violence. It was very modest in many ways, and it was a very peaceful speech. But there was a lot of, uh, and there was a lot of love out there. Zelizer went on to note that our conversation with the former president underscored common criticism, that he construed the presidency as a forum to prove his deal-making prowess, that he sought flattery and believed too much of his own spin, that he dismissed substantive criticism as misinformed, politically motivated, ethically compromised, or otherwise cynical. The former president, Zelizer writes, has a limited historical worldview and measured American politicians primarily by how they treated him. A lot of what he did is transactional. All he was talking about primarily uh, were the deals that he was able to cut or his prowess as a negotiator rather than his vision, rather than his agenda. So he saw politics very much as business and that was very clear in his uh, in discussion. This comment though may be important some months from now in a very different context. Does it prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump knew his false claims about the election were false? Will the admission that he lost convince a jury someday that the president of the United States committed a crime? There's a rule of evidence for it. Federal Rule of Evidence 801D2, a statement by a party opponent. And it will be admissible as evidence against Donald Trump at his future criminal trial. Yes, it's just another piece of evidence proving Donald Trump's corrupt intent, his guilty state of mind, his criminal mens rea, right? He let it slip out that 
he lost the election, right? He knew it wasn't rigged. He knew it wasn't stolen. Trump has worked very hard to demonstrate that he doesn't think he lost. From the first hours after the polls closed, November 3rd of 2020, he claimed that the election was being taken away from him, insisting in the middle of the night that, frankly, he did win, after all. Then, as it is well established, he spent months repeating the same bullshit claim with a rotating cast of evidence. He won. The election was stolen. The world will soon see enough. It was rigged and stolen, and because of that, our country is being destroyed. But while there may be nothing we can do to stop Joe Biden's mental and physical decline, with your vote this November, we can stop our country's decline and make America great again. His reasons for doing so are not solely legal. It's useful for him to have his base think that the election was stolen. The post-election period was a cash bonanza for Trump, something that would not be the case had he simply just thrown in the towel. His profound narcissism and self-delusion also prevents him from admitting to himself that he lost. Alyssa Farah, who worked for Trump in the weeks after the election, said in an interview last year that Trump knew he lost until he was persuaded otherwise. He knew. He told me shortly after that he knew he lost, she said. But then, you know, folks got around him. They got information in front of him. And I think his mind genuinely might have been changed about that. And that's scary because he did lose. Can I just ask you to be declarative about this? Will you say that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, lied to the American people? He did on the election. And, and we people around him know better. We know that the results were not going to be overturned. We knew that it was a stunt to carry this on for days longer. That was the argument his attorney, John Eastman, made in rejecting an argument that he and Trump had been conspiring to violate the law and therefore that his communications with Trump should be covered by attorney-client privilege. Trump was hearing from lots of people that the election was stolen, information he balanced against advisors telling him that it wasn't. We know there was fraud. They put those ballots in a secret folder in the machines, sitting there waiting until they know how many they need. And then the machine, after the close of polls, we now know who's voted and we know who hasn't. And I can now, in that machine, match those unvoted ballots with an unvoted voter and put them together in the machine. We no longer live in a self-governing republic if we can't get the answer to this question. This is bigger than President Trump. It is the very essence of our Republican form of government and it has to be done. And anybody that is not willing to stand up to do it does not deserve to be in the office. It is that simple. What this ignores, of course, is that Trump spent months claiming that the election would be stolen, claims for which there was no evidence. He said over and over that mail-in ballots were suspect when there was no reason to assume that they would be. And he and his team made outlandish claims about random incidents to reinforce that skepticism. There has been no evidence of any substantial fraud since the election occurred. But Trump was making the same claims about fraud even before it did. Evidence that the point was sowing doubt, not revealing truth. 
It's a rigged election. It's the only way we're gonna lose. Eastman's effort to block investigators from seeing his communications with Trump was rejected by U.S. District Judge David O. Carter because Carter found it likely that Trump had violated federal law in making the January 6th riot possible. To bolster his argument, Carter pointed to a very specific incident as revealing that Trump knew very well that he intended not to right a historic wrong, reject an election tainted by fraud, but instead to retain power unlawfully. In his sweeping and historic 44-page ruling against Eastman today, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter wrote, Based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. On January 2nd of 2021, Trump called Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and pressured him to treat the results in his state as uncertain or invalid. Trump presented a number of claims about fraud that were unsubstantiated, insignificant, or both. Ultimately, though, he simply asked that Raffensperger come up with enough votes to give him the victory. Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to re-examine it, and you can re-examine it, but, but re-examine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. This may not prove that Trump knew he lost, but it does strongly suggest that he aimed to hold power unlawfully. He just wanted Raffensperger to declare that 11,000-plus votes had been found somehow and that Trump had won. It wasn't that Trump thought there was specifically that number of fraudulent votes at issue. It was that he needed those votes to hold on to power. Let me handle it. I'll call him up. I said, Brian, listen, you know, you have a big election integrity problem in Georgia. I hope you can help us out and call a special election and let's get to the bottom of it for the good of the country. Let's get to the bottom of it for the good of your state. Let's go, election integrity. What could be better than that? Sir, I'm sorry, I, I cannot do that. I said, whoa. I said, you cannot do that. And that's why, uh, let me tell you, this guy's a disaster. He's a disaster. All of these concerns could prove to be far naught as the January 6th committee has grown increasingly alarmed that Attorney General Merrick Garland seems unwilling to go to the mat and prosecute Trump or his co-conspirators. Calls for the Attorney General to act have reached a fever pitch in recent days as committee members have pleaded with Garland to get off his ass and do something. There was more vigor to find out that Hillary Clinton had her risotto recipes and her daughter's wedding information planning, or wedding planning information on a personal server. There was an actual investigation, a criminal investigation that got announced 11 days before the election because she was using a personal server not to hide crimes, but for everything. So we literally on news on the news, you know, on, on inter national news, we're talking about her freaking risotto recipes. And this may have cost her the election. There was a criminal investigation about this woman's emails 
And we can't get Merrick Garland to even indicate that he even cares to do anything about a, an attempted coup that involved United States senators and the White House. I don't get it. Garland dismissed criticisms from the committee last week in a news conference, telling reporters he would not rush the Justice Department's investigation of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. As long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done consistent with the facts and the law. Normally what happens is that every revelation that's damaging to the subject of a probe brings an investigation one step closer to charges being filed. But when Donald Trump's involved, the only thing that seems to happen is that each new story brings me one step closer to losing all faith in both the US political and justice systems. Asked again Wednesday about the delay in making a decision on Meadows and criticism that lack of Justice Department action could render congressional subpoenas ineffective, Garland said only that prosecutors would follow the facts in the law. Either Merrick Garland has a super secret investigation going on that nobody knows about, but he's got all the cards and he's ready to go, or it's the biggest failure of an attorney general in American history. Those are the stakes that, well, right now, and that's what we're looking at. Members of the committee had privately and publicly grumbled about the Justice Department's silence, expressing concern that Garland has the potential to seriously hamper their investigation. It's vitally important that the Justice Department act on these criminal referrals. Uh, if they don't, if Congress can't enforce its subpoenas, it means we can't do our oversight. And if we can't do our oversight, we can't hold any president accountable, uh, past, present, or future, uh, it makes us into kind of a plaything uh, for a despotic president. And this is where the rubber meets the road, folks. The January 6th committee has built what looks to be a watertight case from the bottom up that implicates Donald Trump in a host of federal crimes from fraud to obstruction. But justice hangs on the willingness of one man. That's Merrick Garland having the fucking courage to bring him up on charges. And right now, all bets are off. And now for the main event. With a dizzying amount of litigation coalescing around the former president, I asked Harry Littman to return to mea culpa and help us make sense of all the chaos. Littman is the host and mastermind behind the smash hit legal affairs podcast, Talking Feds. A former U.S. attorney and deputy attorney general, Littman can also be seen on MSNBC and CNN. In addition, he is a contributor to the Washington Post and the legal affairs columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Littman speaks to Mea Culpa in a moment of great peril for the legitimacy of the January 6th committee as it seeks to enforce its subpoenas. Should Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro be met with criminal referrals only for the DOJ to do nothing about them? Once again, the ability for the committee to hold anyone to account is in serious jeopardy. 
Littman discusses all this and more only on Maya Culpa. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, Harry. So in response to the GOP's shameful treatment of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson during her Supreme Court nomination and I should say confirmation, you recently wrote, and I quote, like the souls in Dante's purgatory, she can still be joyous, to borrow Booker's trope, knowing her confirmation remains assured, and on terms that count as bipartisan in this debased period. But but the near total that was a, That's a little pointy-headed now that I hear it. Yeah, it think? is, right? But, Quoting Dante, a little pretentious, don't you think? Uh, you think? But... But the near total <laughs> opposition to a patently yeah. qualified candidate for spurious reasons is one more stain on the Republicans' conduct um, of the Supreme Court politics. In your opinion, why is the GOP going down this road and positioning themselves as racist obstructionists? Is it merely performative for the bases they have become the 24-7 culture war party? Or is there something deeper and more dirty? Okay, so that is a big one. Uh, let me first try to clean <laughs> up my pointy-headed mess and just say, it was, I didn't mean to just name drop, but in, in Dante's book, the souls in purgatory are happy because they know they are, even though they're you know, bored and doing all this stuff. They know they're getting to heaven. That's that's all. To, so so that was the the uh, that's the, the notion and why <laughs> I thought it was opposite. All right, what are they doing? Well, one thing I think it's clear they're not doing is any kind of honest assessment of the merits of the next Supreme Court justice, about which they don't even care that much because it's a straight up swap. For from you know Breyer to her won't change the composition of the court probably won't even change the voting pattern, so they made a calculated decision uh, to use it for different reasons, even though it meant slapping her around, looking like thugs, and risking the real resentment. I think of a lot of people, you know, and certainly people of color. In order for what my assessment is, just to get a few kind of red meat slogans for the midterms to be able to say, not Jackson, she's going to be on, but to be able to say, oh, Democrats, they are into critical race theory, though no one on their side has any idea what that means. They coddle child pornographers at completely um, spurious. That would be the right word um, charge as to as to her um, and, um, you know, other really um, remote or or just irrelevant points that have it as far as her qualifications go. Now, last week on on Talking Feds, Al Franken was on. And he felt that the Dems missed an opportunity because he saw this basic strategy. And what the Dems seemed to do in response was just preserve their razor thin margin, get her there. And, you know, it looks like so far so good. But what they didn't do is fight uh, a, a sort of similar political battle by pointing out all that had happened, starting with Merrick Garland, to absolutely stack the court in a conservative hammerlock that I think really is out of step with the legal profession and with most 
um, Americans. So I, I'd be glad this we could talk about this for a long time. But the short answer to your question is, I think, why did they do it? Because that's their base and they're looking up to the midterms in a very kind of demagogic you know, three word slogan. Who was oh, Michael Bennett did my podcast yesterday. He said the thing, a problem with Democratic messaging is you always need the other bumper sticker, you know, continued on other <laughs> yeah. bumper sticker. So in the same way, the, the Republicans did this good bumper sticker kind of stuff. Dems, critical race theory, Dems, love child pornographers, you know, and that's what they were going for and not her, which makes it, you know, really a uh, a crude and you know nasty exercise as it pertains to her in particular and you know the kind of way she got slapped around without but even though the the charges were meritless you know I, look i i believe that race is playing a big part into this and nobody said when trump and i actually applauded trump despite the fact that everybody thinks i'm this anti-trump guy 24 7 not true when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed and Trump said he was going to if he had the chance to put another woman on and or when he decided to put Amy Coney Barrett onto the onto the bench. I was like, you know what? Good. The bench should be not this homogenous group of old white men. Right. Um, it should be a mix, just like the same way that the United States of America is. And what bothers me the most is when, you know, I start hearing people turn around and say, well, how could she be on the Supreme Court if you can't even pronounce her name? And they used to say the same dumb shit when Kamala was, was running. It's like, well, is it Kamala? Is it Kamala? Is it Carmela? Well, yeah. You know, how do you, how can you have a vice president <clears throat> whose name you can't pronounce? Well, if you can't pronounce somebody's name or you pronounce it wrong, first of all, nobody cares. Second of all, that's on you, right? Just ask or listen to the news once or twice, and you should be able to understand how to pronounce how to pronounce her name. But what bothers me the most about all of this is her credentials are impeccable. There's no one. I don't give a shit what Republican turns out. She is more accomplished than virtually anybody that's even you know come for that seat. And so far. The only Republican that's willing to stand up and state that 100% that she intends to support um, what Katanji Brown Jackson is Maine Senator Susan Collins. And I say, you know, good for her because it's a really tight, tight vote. And one of the things I was watching on CNN, they have uh, John Avalon was doing this great piece on reality check about the fact that, you know, past nominees and how far as a country we've digressed in the fact that past nominees have basically sailed through this confirmation process, almost to the point where there was not a single nay vote. So, for example, like Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy and Antonin Scalia, both of them it was unanimous. And then I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There was like three naysayers, right? You know, onto that, that voted nay to that. As opposed to now, everything is so partisan. How about for the first time, if we're, gonna, if we're going to allow the Supreme Court to continue to do what it needs to do and to allow the president, who is, you know, responsible for picking and choosing who he wants to put on, on the bench, how about just... Go along with them. I mean, could you imagine that somebody like, um, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed 
and yet you can't get Katanji Brown Jackson confirmed, right? I mean, it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. You know, allow the president of the United States to pick and choose if, in fact, that person has the ability to appoint somebody. Just allow them to go through the process without looking like a bunch of racist fucking scumbags. I don't know a nicer way to put it. Yeah, Um, boy, it is a deeply broken process. So let me say a few things first um, about the role of race, you know. I, I agree with you in this sense that they they are when and when I say they're going for the midterms, they are playing to their base. And I just think there is no way around the kind of even if it's not raw racism, the racial insecurity of so many of the most of the Trump stalwarts who believe that the elites are sort of taking things away from them and giving preferences, especially to to racial minorities. But on her credentials, it's more than just her race and gender. I clerked for Thurgood Marshall. He was the last person with significant defense experience. He brought a lot to the court. I mean, you know, half the amendments in the Bill of Rights are about the government's relationship to criminals. That's something we're really supposed to get right. And someone who knows how things work, what it's like, has represented and accused, that matters a lot. She's done that. She also, by the way, has been on the Sensing Commission, and that's an important part of their docket, especially after Breyer goes. And she's been a district court judge for 10 years, and you really get a feel there. So it's not her her diversity of experience is, you know, just going to be really um, helpful to them. So that, you know, that's that's the second main point. But in terms of deferring to the president, it used to be like that. You know, something went there. You can there half of what, in fact, the Republicans are saying today. Uh, uh, I, you know, there's two or three like um, crews who are making making shit up about either her record or how liberal she is. And then there are others who are making just no sense at all, saying, uh, well, I disagree with her judicial philosophy. You know, you have no idea what her judicial and by philosophy the way, is. By the way, and, it's no problem. Yeah. Let them disagree. Right. That and claim that she's yeah. soft on crime or that they didn't like her, you know, um, Trump era immigration ruling when she was on the bench. Um, let them. You're not supposed to. agree. Could you imagine if you agreed with every single thing that member of the Supreme Court believes in? You would have unanimous decisions each and every time. There would be no dissent. In essence, I hate to say it, but as a people, as Americans, our country would never be able to grow if everybody agreed with everything all the time. We'd be North Korea. Let me interrupt because... As a pointy head, I've already established my pointy headed bona fides and judicial philosophy does matter. But the but the, but the whole process is designed to um, hide it and obscure it. And she played the rules of the game. So now the other uh, and, and then the, the, the last point I was trying to make is half of the objections expressly. I mean, it's such an insult to her have nothing at all to do with her, but are really trying to, you know, expressly settle uh, perceived scores of how people thought they weren't treated right. It is the case before about Scalia, you know, there just wasn't this kind of ideological um, loading of every nomination and just, ju- ju- you know, um, presidents picked the most qualified and and it, there, there was an early period where there were a lot of fights. But then for the most part, people went through. But here's another thing. 
you know, in the last since around the civil rights era, it has become the case that almost every really important and polarizing dispute gets settled by the court or we look to it to, to do it. And that's one of the things that raised the stakes. That that doesn't mean, of course, that they should be doing bogus um, investigations. They should be doing real investigations. Anyway, this was a really tawdry uh, performance, and especially Ollie and Cruz and Blackburn, um, you know, made fools of of themselves, and it was kind of shameful be- because they weren't, you know, they it wasn't really about her, and that's a disservice to the court and to their constitutional role. Right. But let's not forget as well that the Democrats sort of put like Brett Kavanaugh through the fucking ringer. But here's the difference. So reasons. Yeah, that's the point for reasons. And I'm not saying it again because I'm left of center. Right. And, And so I'm saying it because a classmate of his came out. And made all sorts of sexual allegation claims against him. Now, I think that's kind of relevant versus, oh, I don't like Katanji Brown-Jackson because she's soft on crime, right? I mean, soft on crime in what respect? I mean, look, everybody's entitled to have differences, but I think the Republicans went way too far here. And you're right, like Marsha Blackburn, who I've known for many years, used to come to my office. I never ever in my life would have turned around and said that I would think that she's just a fucking racist, but she is. Now, Ted Cruz, nobody knows what Ted Cruz is. All the others are running for president, though. Is she? Do you think she's running for president? No. Michael, because I couldn't, where did did this come out? Why'd she go, you know, so crazy Trumpy stuff? Probably probably just to continue to be part of the boys club that she was never in. As much as she wanted certain positions by Trump, and she was an early Trump supporter, he he yeah. never gave her an opportunity to join into his administration, and she wanted it terribly. So why she continues to placate this level of stupidity that's all being promoted by Donald, honestly, I don't have the answer to it. But let me just move on for a sec here, Harry, because last week— the January 6th committee seemed to truly advance the ball on several fronts. First, of course, there was Judge Carter's decision in the Eastman ruling that laid out how Trump more than likely committed felony obstruction. Now, then there was the discovery of these missing call logs. I mean, seven and a half hours worth. And then, of course, tack on Jeannie Thomas and, you know, a host of other smaller revelations. And it seemed that the worm, right, you know, has turned. Right. I mean, what's your larger feeling here? What do you think is going to ultimately happen? Because so far we've seen Donald as Teflon. Yeah. So it's a great question. You know, like we do this podcast every week and you look for broader themes and you look to, in, you know, put in titles. And that was what I was thinking about all weekend. Have Is this a change in the tides? It feels like in a few different ways, maybe there there's a bit of a reversal of of uh, tide here. Now, we got to start. We we have to sort of take one one step at a time. I do think they had a good week. They're starting hearings. They say in the spring, but it ought to be pretty soon. That gap is just you, you know stinks to high 
uh, heaven. And it's if in a prosecutor's hands, it's really strong evidence of intent. You could get what the prosecutors call a consciousness of guilt instruction. It's you. You probably have, have insight into this. I have a little bit from, you know, being a, at the edges of the White well, House. Once sometimes. you finish you answering right my question, middle, Harry? but you can yeah, once you finish answering my question, I will answer you. You'll come to it. All right. Of course. So I think I think we're we're seeing the best uh, committee ever, and they're going to do a great report. The Department of Justice has, as Garland and uh, promised, on the fifth uh, started an investigation now of the political actors, very big, and and also the slate, uh, the the bogus slates, all very big. But if you're asking my, you know, best instinct of what that means for the ultimate $64,000 question of prosecution of your former boss, I don't think we've come that far yet. There's still lots of uh, obstacles that we could talk about more. But generally, the feel that things have turned a little in the department itself is at least, you know, got the wherewithal and the focus on a lot of people around him, and that the committee is really making progress. Um, I, yeah, I agree with you. I felt like, you know, the arc of justice is long, but bends toward, or, you know, the arc, uh, the arc of the moral universe, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, it felt like to me, a, not just a good week, but a kind of a, maybe a sort of reversal of tide and certain important things are, are going in a better direction. Okay, so let me just break this down for a second. Let's just start with Judge Carter's um, determination okay. uh, in the Eastman ruling that Trump more than likely uh, committed felony obstruction. That's a crime, correct? That's in fact, it's not just a crime. It is. And I've said this for a while. The the most likely charge for him, 1512 D4, he aids and abets, which is the same thing. You're treated as the as a perpetrator under the law, the obstruction. And what's that mean? He was really trying and he took steps to do it to keep the vote from happening to me. That's it's almost it's a lay down that he was trying. And there's just these exotic questions about intent, if he's such a sociopath that he really believed it, et cetera. But I've said this before. I, I For one, I think intent is simpler than people are saying it is. But I think the evidence of intent is long since there. I think the Department of Justice understands it's long since there. And the obstacles now, you know, I mean, they have to keep working it, move up the line. I'd love to see Scavino cooperate and tell just what Trump was doing. But basically, you know, that he that that's what he was trying to do. And he had guilty intent. I think it's there. And it's all the other constitutional, small C, big C policy, political things that I think are going to, you know, be weighed in Merrick Garland's balance. But yeah, Carter, he didn't say exactly that he committed a crime because it was, as you say, more likely than not. But the part that's missing, the extra dollop of intent evidence, I think it's there already. And by the way, if it wasn't, Seven and a half hours of no call log. That was that's my next. Ver- that's very strong extra intent evidence for sure. That's right. And yet Merrick Garland still sits on his hands. And now couple that in, mm. as you just said, well, he is yeah. sitting on his hands. Look, Harry, you could tell me whatever you want. They've had more than 500 people provide um, testimony yeah, to this committee. Yeah. Okay, 750 now. That's marvelous. Supposedly, yeah. Okay, yeah. so if each one 
is in for no less than eight hours. I've never been in one of these, and I've been in more than a dozen of these hearings. I've never been yeah. in one that's less than eight hours. You're talking about 5,600 hours. You're t- basically talking about almost a year and a half worth of ongoing 24-7 testimony. And if you don't, by God, have after a year and a half of having every second of every minute of every hour of every day for a year and a half, if you don't have enough on the guy and so on, now you have to understand why these sycophantic Republicans continue to side with him, calling it witch hunt, calling this the greatest injustice against Donald Trump in the history of America. And it's about time that Merrick, you know, Garland starts to do something. But then as you just rightfully said- He has started to do something. Okay, an indictment indictment is the right way to go. But let's now take what you just pointed out. Seven hours and 37 minutes of pure absence on a call log by the president of the United States. Now compare and contrast that to- Richard Nixon and his missing call log, which was for what an hour? What was um? What was the well, time it, well, period? The tape. The gap was eighteen and a half minutes that was erased in this ridiculous, supposed uh, Rosemary Woods. But yeah, so the, but the gap in the sort of smoking gun tape was eighteen and a half minutes. You know, and that's, what- that's about you know. Not 5%, maybe. It's, it's something yeah. like that. But what makes this even yeah. more nefarious on behalf of Donald is that the bulk of this three hours and 37 minute absence in the call log occurred while the attack on the Capitol was ensuing. Yeah. And that's very dangerous. And rest assured that Trump was on a cell phone. Most probably somebody else's, the way he would speak to me. I testified before Congress. I gave it to the DA, to the attorney, anyone that asked me, they, including Republicans. You know, they, you know, when yeah. you spoke to Donald, did you always speak to him from the White House phone? No. Hope Hicks at some time would give him the phone. Scavino would give it. Other people said, let's say he was playing golf and he would just have them call me on their cell phone. So this is crazy shit. All right. And well, it's not to- that I'm playing golf. He's doing, you know, he, he's lazy and sloppy. This isn't that he's go. This is purposeful. Dan, give me a burner phone like a like a drug dealer and throw it away. And of course, we know there's a he's of course, he's working the phones during that time. And we know that at least one call came in through the White House that doesn't appear on the log. So this is up front. I mean, this really is screaming consciousness of guilt. He decides in advance, we're not going to, I'm going to take crazy measures, drug dealer type measures to keep a record being made. That's the act of a guilty man. And then the cherry on the cake is, you know, there was recently uh, this, this individual, this gentleman who, testified before the House, um, you know, um, committee, the January 6th committee, stating that he was the one that went out and purchased three burner phones from CVS at the request of Amy and Kylie Kramer. And they were on the phone with supposedly in his mind, he believes it was Mark Meadows because they were close enough. He could hear the conversation who of course was with Donald at the time. So who knows whether Meadows was using a burner phone that was provided by this, by this 
you know, by these two yeah. um, ladies that had this gentleman purchase them and, you know, took the receipts. And he was like, well, you know, I don't have the receipt. He made me give it to him. I said, what are you worrying about? They have all of this at central office. They'll just contact them and say on well, what I'll day, what they time. Do have it. Yeah, they have it in Russia because there was being uh, eavesdropped. But I, I want to say as a prosecutor, this is this is the main reason. There are a couple people... Look, 750 people and they're getting so much and there are other ways of getting most much evidence. A couple exceptions here, it seems to me, are A, Meadows and B, Scavino, who is at his shoulder. The trust, you know, he's a caddy who he's now made into literally who he's now made into deputy chief of staff. He trusts him. That guy's testimony would be very valuable. And this the contempt uh, holding him contempt means they're not going to get it. But what I, and so what I think the Department of Justice ought to be doing, I think Scavino has has basically decided he can do he can do a year for Donald. But I, I would love to see them build a case against them, obviously, if it's consistent with the facts and the law. But where the leverage is much more than a year is more like 15, 20. And really then because that's testimony that I don't see how we're going to get otherwise. And it's also devastating testimony. He is the guy who is at his shoulder. And we start with here's everything Donald was trying to hide and, and he can go through it. That I, I, that's a really important missing piece right now. You know, it's very funny too. I, I agree with you. I think that Dan is stupid enough to want to go to jail uh, for Donald, despite the fact, I'll give you a little history. Yeah. I'll give you a, a little history. Yeah. It could be longer than a year, but he's willing to do something like that in hopes that Donald will save him like he did with Manafort or Stone or others. Um, Dan, you're right, started out as a caddy, but he ultimately became the general manager of the Trump National Golf Club in Briarcliff Manor that's in Westchester. And he was ultimately yeah. fired by Alan Weisselberg with Donald's approval because nothing gets done without yeah. Donald's approval because he shit up all the books. And he was on the outs for several years. What do you mean exactly? Uh, this is new, yeah. Yeah, for what several years he was, on the, he was on the outs, completely on the outs. And then one day he no, shows No, but what did he do to the books? Uh, no, it wasn't that he fucked them up. He the, the, was always losing money and that he couldn't keep. And despite the fact the place was very crowded, it was never making the oh, money and so on. So they okay. ultimately fired him, you know, claiming he's a very social guy. Every, all the members liked him. But when it came to numbers and, and the books and so on, everything was completely screwed up. And then he had other people mm. that were working for him that were equally as incompetent. Nevertheless, Three years or so later, he shows up to my office and he says, would you take me in to see the boss? I said, sure, for what? So he goes, well, as we're going through this campaign now, he goes, I'd really like to do his social media. So I say, Dan, I'll do whatever you want. I happen to have liked Dan. I said, but when did you get into social media? He goes, well, during the time <laughs> after, you know, I was, you know, when I left here and I really couldn't find a job, uh, that's what I did. So now all of a sudden, yeah, he's somebody of, Import and this is never that that was there. And generally, once Trump throws you out, you never come back. I mean, there's maybe a couple of people, three or four, that I can name off the top of my head that have managed to somehow come back, and they come back because, like with Dan, it was so cheap to have him on 
that Donald wasn't raising any money at that time. He was making the allegations. He was doing this from his own pocket, which he ultimately took back every penny, just another Trump lie. Um, he took Dan on. And, you know, you got to turn around and give the guy, you got to give the guy his props. He's willing to probably go. I mean, he lost his wife and his kids. I don't think they talked to him, you know, at this point. You mean um, you mean divorce? Yeah, oh, divorce. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I got to give him props. He's managed to climb up Donald's backside so far that he's tickling his tonsils, you know, with the top of his head. It's just it's just a complete joke. But anyway, you know, just moving on then here, Harry, because we All can. Right, but I just want to say January 6th, this joke is the guy who's at Trump's shoulder. And, you know, if 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 he could talk, that, that'd be some it, let me make a general point. It's bad. There hasn't been accountability. It's bad that people have skated away, but it's it's terrible. It's an outrage that we don't have even the full story of what the hell happened. And a guy like Scavina's got an important piece to fill. And, you know, I, I'm I it would be a shame if they just let him. You know, Who do you blame for that? That. That they've managed the, to Trump, yeah. to escape. Well, first and foremost, Trump, but his his helpers. Once upon a time, that included you. I mean, his incredible um, willingness to his disregard for the law and willingness to sort of do everything. But now, now look, we've got to talk about Mueller report and you know a lot of things coalesced. Uh, and time and again, I, like other Trump critics, you were maybe too smart for this thought. Oh, now he's going down. And, you know, it didn't happen. But um, he, he, you start with him. But there's a whole series of act. Mitch McConnell. He's been he's done his role. A lot of reasons why we don't have the full story. And, you know, the, the, the committee, first and foremost, is doing that. And they're a really good committee. And I'm impressed with them. I think probably the strongest ever. And, you know, good for the country that they yeah, you know who the I blame. You know who I blame? I blame Merrick Garland. Let me see. Let me tell you who else I blame. I blame. Yeah. I blame um, w- District Attorney. You blame Merrick Garland that we don't know everything Stop. that happened. Uh, uh, allow sorry, me. Allow me. <laughs> allow me to continue. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. I blame enough, Merrick yeah. Garland. I blame DA Alvin Bragg. I blame mm-hmm. the Southern District of New York prosecutors who sat with twelve sealed indictments. I, a year ago and then decided to let him off the hook because there wasn't enough to convict him on, yet they came after me like a bunch of wild fucking animals. All right, Alvin Bragg, I know what he has in those boxes. First of all, he just mm-hmm. returned one of my boxes to me and so on. Any one of those set of documents, the documentary evidence, just like what we were just talking about, is more than enough to have brought an indictment. And the same thing holds true, uh, like, you know, with Merrick Garland. There is enough already. At some point in time, there's something in my, that I like to call um, Trump fatigue syndrome, right? It doesn't really exist. I kind of like made it up, but it's Trump fatigue <laughs> syndrome. I think we're all yeah. fucking tired of hearing this guy's name in terms of, like, you just said it. You really just said it too, which is that everybody's expecting the anvil to fall, right, and land right on Donald's head, and that's going to be the end of it. He's done. He's finished. Oh, my God. Look what information just came out. Holy shit. How could he survive this? And yet the Teflon Don keeps surviving it week after week, month after month, now year after year. And none of these people are doing anything because I think that 
first of all, I don't think that they understand. Like Alvin Bragg, I think he's got his job all messed up. His job is not to convict. No different than the prosecutors at the Southern District or even Merrick Garland. Your job is to turn around and to see whether or not that there's evidence of the commission of a crime and then turn it over to others like a jury of 12 in order to determine innocent or guilt, not to ensure convictions so you can move on to a seven-figure firm with like the Paul Weisses, the Hastings, right? You can move on to Lowenstein Sandler, Davis Polk, or, you know, Guggenheim Partners, like all the prosecutors in my case did. did. They're as bad as Donald because they don't care about what goes on as long as their, their own personal record doesn't get injured and they get to advance their own careers. All right. So I'm just going to jump in with a couple points because here I'll have a different point of view just to offer for listeners. Um, uh, so first, look, the thing I was saying is the mo is even more important than the anvil falling and criminal accountability. And that is way important. And it's a it's an ongoing toxin that it hasn't happened, not just for him, but his circle is knowing everything and 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 all there is important role for prosecutors to play here but it's not basically to give the full account it's to it's to bring charges and so what we what we haven't had is the equivalent of a 9-11 commission or a kennedy commission or just revelation and that's been large part because of the cynical manipulation of the law that's the first and then second I will. We can talk a lot more about Merrick Garland. I'm happy to. But one thing to tell you is he is not, not, not 100 percent not motivated to be to get the corner office. And this is going to be his last stop. He is. And, it, you know, his in, uh, integrity and patriotism really are are just, you know, su- superb. I, I've worked with them. So there, there could be a lot of reasons why he's going uh, more gingerly than you like, but and but I but I do want to put those two points in, and I will allow them to come in. They have been now introduced <laughs> as evidence, right. and we will mark them as Exhibit <laughs> Zero. All right. So, <laughs> so Harry, yesterday you yeah. tweeted that yeah. one of my favorite people we talk about here on this show, Marjorie Taylor Greene, filed a lawsuit uh. in Georgia alleging, this is great, that the lawsuit seeking to disqualify her under the 14th Amendment from future service for having engaged in the insurrection is an unconstitutional infringement of her First um, Amendment rights. Now, she and Corthon are definitely squirming. If you would, unpack for me what this all means and what's happening in this case and what's her likelihood of success. I don't think she's got strong success of 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 her claim. Let me take a step back because it, it it feels weird to people, and they think, "Oh, that can't really be." But guess what? It really can. In the wake of the Civil War, they they passed the Fourteenth Amendment, which is the you know the most powerful engine of rights probably in the Constitution, and they were really focused on the former rebels, and they didn't want them to, and and the and they were going around the 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 newly. Uh, the the former rebels in the South and just giving freedmen hell and trying to keep people from voting. So there's an there's a provision that just says you are not qualified, not qualified to serve in Congress if you swore an oath to the Constitution and engaged in an insurrection. 
And they used it uh, uh, early on. And then they gave they said, all right, enough. Let's have, you know, and they voted, just voted a general amnesty. But that provision is still in the Constitution. It was used in World War One. And so the, the important thing to understand, it's a qualification. So you got to be 25. You got to be this is to be a member of Congress. You got to have lived in your district seven years or whatever. And you have to. You're just not qualified. Uh, if you uh, previously swore an oath and then engaged in insurrection. So two more le- quick legal points. What's it? What's it? How, how's that executed? Somebody the exact same way it's executed. If so, if a voter says, you know what, she hasn't really lived here for seven years. It's only been five, even though, uh, the, you know, and here are the the um, utility bills or whatever. That It's the exact same same thing. Uh, and then second, what does it mean to engage in insurrection, at least in North Carolina, where Madison Cawthorn is facing this suit? It just means to have helped these guys out, basically. So when you put it all together and stack each piece on top, it looks really damn serious. Now, on the other hand, courts getting like, geez, that feels like Civil War stuff. But what's happening in individual states, and it's going to happen more uh, and it's going to have to go fast. Because this is an important point, uh, you know, as a kind of contrast to what I was just saying. They can't diddle around because you got to be on the ballot or not. So people brought this thing and said, lawsuit, get Green off because she engaged in insurrection. Now, what has she said? Well, when I said all these things about, you know, her crazy ass things and she's, uh, you, you know, her her greatest hits of statements is probably up there with, you know, the biggest Looney Tunes of all. I was exercising First Amendment rights, but, you know, this is that's such a weak claim. You you can use words to uh, foment insurrection. And, you know, the First Amendment doesn't doesn't protect that. So there and there's this constitutional provision. So she's, she's going to lose on that, I think. Nevertheless, I just think judges are going to be like, really, I can just bounce somebody from the ballot if I find this. And 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 even though it feels like pretty solid legally, you know, it's just something that I think is going to make judges chafe. So it's hard to give a bottom line prediction except to say, look, you know, it fits. It sure fits the crime. You know, she sure did engage in, you know, help out insurrectionists, um, you know, uh, one and um, uh, and two, you know, there 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 are people there who are going to be fighting to to keep her and Cawthorn and there'll probably be a few others uh, off. So it's super interesting. As a lawyer, as a law student, I would say the claim is solid, but as a sort of older kind of more pragmatic person, I it, it feels to me like, wow, it's hard to imagine they'll really be kicked out and 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 again this is disqualified that means they can't even be on the ballot but anyway that's so that's the basic law and where and where it stands and i can say that her lawsuit you know should should not it, a fir, the first amendment claim here is 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 really weak what's funny though is that her filing right actually claimed and she vigorously denied Right, that she aided and yep. engaged in the insurrection to obstruct the That's peaceful right. transfer of presidential power, despite the fact that there's video of her. It's not as if it's video of me saying that she <laughs> said it, right? This is her going out there and 
basically stating the exact opposite. But here's the thing. Whether it's Madison Cawthorn, who's just another fucking jerk-off, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or Josh Hawley, or Matt Gates, or Ted Cruz, or any of the lunch bunch, right? It doesn't make it... Here's what they learned from Donald. When it suits you, lie. And if you have to lie a second time, which you're going to have to, do it. And then keep perpetuating that lie until ultimately that you raise enough doubt. Now, you bring up the true, the rock-solid point, which is what's a judge going to do here? Is a judge really going to turn around and not allow, you know, somebody who is a citizen of the United States, who happens to be a member of Congress, not to run again because, you know, there's, uh, you know, this 14th Amendment that prevents them from running in the event that there's an alleged, because nobody has yet to make a determination that the insurrection was actually an insurrection. According to Donald, everyone was peaceful. They were all walking right. in between the stanchions. It was no different than a regular visiting day. And so, so now you have all of this, you know, as we like to call it, this, you know, this, it's like a, um, uh, a potpourri of bullshit that's swarming all around. <laughs> yeah, right? That's how you like to call it there? You uh, know, potpourri of bullshit? You're going to yeah, you know, put it on a badge? And, and, yeah. and I want just... to make two quick legal points, though, okay, if you'll it. let me on this. Okay, so first... You're right, but the, the the Trump playbook has been delayed, deny, obstruct. It's harder here because come May 19th, say in North Carolina, some the name is on the ballot or it's off the ballot. So they can't diddle around forever. And then second, at least in North Carolina, Michael, and check this out, Madison Cawthorn has the burden of proof because of the, the preliminary showing that folks have made. And, you know, and so it's the exact opposite of situations where we were just talking about it, you know, Carter versus beyond a reasonable doubt. This isn't not just that he actually has to show he wasn't engaged in an in insurrection. I'm not sure what Georgia law is for Marjorie Taylor Greene, but if they play it straight, according to what the law says, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's looking at trouble. And, and interestingly, this shouldn't matter in the law, but I get the strong impression that the sort of Republican establishment, including in Congress, would be more than happy to uh, to sacrifice him and see him go. So yeah, maybe you know. yes, maybe no. I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I yeah. do think that their their preference, despite what yeah. many would turn around and say publicly, is to keep them there because their shenanigans really does help them to raise money, which that's all yeah. that it seems that they care about these days. It's all about saying that's something. That's the other point about the confirmation, by the way. They not only wanted to get the slogans, they wanted to use it and they already have to raise to raise money. And they just sacrificed Jackson for that. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, they're just they're just using her. OK, so, Harry, let's just move. Let's just move on. Right. So. Yeah, it's recently been revealed. <laughs> exactly. One, two, three. <laughs> so it's recently been revealed <laughs> we that, covered Gin- that. Yeah, that right. Ginny Thomas and Trump enjoyed visiting with one another at the White House and that she would bring a list of people for Trump to hire and to fire. Now, White House officials called her disturbed and that she would play into Trump's um, love of conspiracy and overall paranoia. Right. The drama of Donald. What do you know or what have you heard about their relationship and how it's relevant to the January 6th investigation? All right. So, I mean, it is. So let's stay with Ginny Thomas for a minute. 
It is so bad on so many levels. Remember John Kelly eventually, well, a chief of staff is there to screen out the loonies. You're screening out anyone. You need to have process in the White House. Instead, Ginny Thomas, who is who? A kind of crazy conservative married to Supreme Court Justice Waltz is in, flatters the president, has these lists of who? Crazy people. You know, this. Th- these are like the biggest conspiracy theorist and not um, coincidentally incompetence. Uh, and she she takes other like solid, you know, nut wings of their own, but calls them never Trumpers. And she would leave and at least, you know, the accounts that have that's now been reported, the the staff would be like, oh, God, she, she just like because here now. Trump is going to, you know, make personnel decisions. You were there. It's so critical to how a government runs. So to have somebody, you know, even if they were solid, be able to just waltz in, prevent all process and give their names and flatter the president. And then decisions are made in that way. That's that's disaster for starters. But who did it seed in the executive uh, branch? Really the, the craziest of the crazies. And whom did it oust? you know, crazy liberals, as she put it, like Karl Rove and and the like. So the actual behavior is really troubling in about six um, different ways. What does it mean for January 6th? Well, she's also, you know, an all an all round kibitzer. And even though there are some people who roll their eyes, she had some real power. And she's you know, we know that she's a conduit between Meadows and Jared Kushner, that there are and and what we know is really based on just the happenstance revelation of fewer than 30 Meadows emails. But we have reason to think she was talking to literally dozens and dozens of members of Congress trying to buck them up to do what? You know, ignore the law, ignore the Constitution and and try to something, you know, what she called, by the way, she's completely in on the big lie. She calls the election with no reason, the greatest heist in history. And she's also sort of malicious. Harry, not for no no reason, not to interrupt you, but not for no reason. She's much smarter than Donald. All right. So is, you know, so is your dog, if you even have one. All right. He's as dumb. Of course as, I have a dog. He's Orion, as, come he's here. He's as dumb <laughs> as a stump. And what she realized is two things. And yeah. it's important. Then I want you to continue. The first thing she yeah, realized yeah. is that the last person in Donald's ear owns his head. No matter who it is, yeah. whether it's Jeannie Thompson yeah. or it's, you know, or it's, um, you know, uh, the the Mike Mike Lindell the Mike Pillow guy it makes no difference yeah. who you are right if you have the Don, the last word in Donald's ear you own the space in between those two ears in his head and that's all you have to especially if you're playing to something that he believes as you called it the Trump paranoia right but more important than that okay why and it's all true and we already knew. We already knew she was extreme conservative. Then we found out with the Meadows emails, she's a complete, you know, believer in the big lie. And then we found out after she's not just that she's a total malicious, you know, hater. She she envisions uh, Biden and, you know, being uh, uh, laid out on barges in Guantanamo. And, you know, she's she's 
sort of dripping venom. And this, if this, if a person like that, crazy, I mean, factually crazy, if you buy into the big lie, and maybe you think she doesn't even, but she has reasons for it, that could be even worse, but just such so hating uh, is making personnel uh, you know, decisions by bypassing all the processes for them. That's really bad. And and this, of course, is just personnel. Now we don't really know. They, they're going to invite her voluntarily. She has no basis to refuse, but we'll see how she fights uh, coming and cooperating with the committee. Now, from there, you add in at least a reason for her influence is being married to a Supreme Court justice. And now the Supreme Court looks terrible. Then you add, I, I've all, I've been saying this for a while. The big problem with Ginny Thomas is Ginny Thomas. You can construct uh, scenarios that mean that, you know, in individual kinds of cases, Thomas should recuse. He won't because there's this scandal that, that you know, the law doesn't ap- apply to them. But the big problem really is if it's true. We don't know if it's true. But, you know, these guys from the start have always portrayed themselves as best friends and soulmates. If in any way, I, you know, the, the senior justice of the Supreme Court believes or ha- holds to this worldview. And uh, again, that's not proven, but that to me is the much cra- much more worrisome scenario. And people are jumping to recusal. I can see why they want to, but you know that's that I think is a a small part, smaller part of what's really going on here. And B, probably not going to happen uh, just because of the the messed up way the law works. Harry, let me enlighten you for a quick sec because. You know, you are. That's why uh, I come on this show. As the lawyer. It's fun, but I want to be, I want to enlighten, and you've got all the experience. As as a lawyer, you're concentrating on the law and the process and so on. I would ask you, why do you think that Trump allowed Jeannie Thomas? free access into the Oval Office. And it's not yeah. about the flattery. It's not about the fact that um, she agreed with these crazy conspiracy theories of the election being stolen and so on and so forth. Why do you think that he let her into it? You have to understand the sociopathy of Donald Trump. And I'm not going to ask you to try to guess it, but I'm going to tell it to you. I, I think I know where you're going. And if that's true, it's even and worse. And why don't but you tell me? You, no, tell but, me, but, but school me. Well, I thought you were going to say because she's, you know, has this special role as the spouse of a Supreme Court justice whose vote might really matter for his personal uh, interest down the line. That's correct. That's right. And let's not forget that there was the entire tax issue that was brought on by Cyrus Vance that had preceded yeah. much of what Jeannie um, Thomas uh, was was up to. So his feeling in his mind is, okay, she's on my side because I hear what she's saying and she's promoting the theft of my presidency and on and on and on and you know involved in this January 6th rally turned insurrection etc but more importantly what he cares about more than anything is his money and his business and if she would have sway because she'll come home and tell her husband oh yeah I was sitting with Donald today in the Oval Office we were talking about x y and z because they are soulmates and his husband and wife they probably share everything uh, on the pillow or in the kitchen one of the two and next you know 
you know, he thinks in his crazy mind that Clarence Thomas would have the ability to communicate the fact that this isn't right, that they should not allow his tax returns to be released. And, you know, obviously we know where that went. And that's how Donald Trump thinks. He's not thinking about the process, what's right, what's wrong. You know, um, should they be allowed to? Should they not be allowed to? It's only about what he wants and he's willing, you know, and she was completely willing, just like um, Attorney General Bill Barr was willing, you know, to Dump, throw themselves into the dumpster fire, right, of Dante's Inferno, you know, for the whole purpose of what? Of appeasing a sociopath, a narcissistic All sociopath. Right. By the way, gorgeously done. Don't think I don't, didn't notice how you brought it back around to Dante toward the end of this thing. But let me just, uh, if that's right, you I, look, we've seen Trump like that and worse. And the nation's hope then has to rest in Justice Thomas's, you know, integrity, there are certain some justices, there certainly are justices whose spouses would know not to communicate and others who would know to ignore it if they did. What you've laid out is an absolute, you know, nightmare uh, scenario, scenario yeah. of justice perverted. Uh, we don't know. We can't we don't have enough proof of that but that something like that the 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 notion that they could kind of be birds of a feather in these views is the ultimate worry as it pertains to clarence not as opposed to the the recusal stuff again we don't know it yet but there's plenty i'll just repeat the big problem with jenny thomas is jenny thomas so then let me ask you this you yeah. retweeted the great and a friend of mine, Asha Rangappa, yesterday, who wrote, and I'm going to quote, the gap in the call great. records began at 11.17 a.m. The Capitol was breached at approximately 1.30 p.m. This isn't a yeah. case of realizing that something crazy is happening and then deciding to hide communications while taking advantage of it at the moment. It means that it was premeditated. If you would, unpack for my listeners, what do you think Asha means here? And how does this prove that this was a premeditated act? How would you prove it as yeah. a lawyer? I would start there that it happened before because it's not as if the, the all of a sudden there's fighting going on and he says, uh-oh, I better steer clear of this for a while while I figure out what's going on. And remember, he's for hours does nothing. And then when he comes out, it's with this really bizarre you know we love you go home kind of kind of tweet but it started at 11 17 why does he want to go dark at 11 17 because he envisions in the immediate future he's going to be doing stuff that is out of bounds he doesn't want people to know about so that means i think that his thought hope expectation is that there would be if necessary, it doesn't need to be that he knows it's going to be violent, but there's going to be actual interference, obstruction with the with Congress's vote. He's going to be in some way fanning the flames or or, you know, wanting to encourage at least get reports and that he goes dark in advance makes him look almost like if not an impresario of the whole event, at least someone who's got the playbook in advance and it's a playbook of patent not just unconstitutional action but the worst 
you know, assault on the hallmark of democracy, the peaceful transfer of power that we've had maybe ever, but at least since the Civil War. And then finally, Asha says, Asha knows, you know, she's, she's, so I retweeted. I don't, I don't do a lot of retweeting just because, I mean, I agree with stuff, but who who the hell am I to retweet? People can read it, but except when it's just dead on. And I wish I'd said that myself, you know, if she's an agent and I'm working with her on the case and she says, look, 1117, two hours before it even happens, I would say, of course, great point. I'm going to make sure that's part of my presentation in my case in chief. Yeah, you know who else wrote uh, wrote something that I found to be spot on, and I wanted to get your take on it. Dennis um, Aftergut yeah. wrote in the Slate that it's, you know, and I, I'm going to quote it from using alternate means of communication uh, over five or six hours. In fact, it was seven and a, seven hours thirty seven minutes, including others' phones or potentially burner phones to avoid calls being logged would justify a consciousness of guilt instruction. You agree with that? 100%. He's acting like a drug dealer, and I can show you cases where court after court has said that justifies consciousness of guilt. And by the way, Dennis Aftergut, who I worked with many years ago, is a great American who all of a sudden, I don't know if you, you know, publishes something like every day, sometimes with Lawrence Tribe, sometimes with different people. He's really making a move to be an important uh, public uh, intellectual. And I, I really love uh, following him. Yeah, I follow him too. And Lawrence is just great. He's been on the show several times. Every time I get off, you know, with him, as I do with you, my head spins. I need to, you know, go <laughs> grab a couple of Advil yeah. because I'm really concerned. I'm really concerned about democracy. I'm, I really believe that, you know, Trump is um, the wannabe Putin, wannabe Kim Jong-un, Mohammed bin Salman, Erdogan, all of the, he wants to be all of that and more. But, you know, as we come down to the final, you know, question as the hour has, you know, now come almost to an wow, end. Wow, that's I, by. Yeah, it goes uh-huh. by really fast. Um, my final question to you, Harry, with all of this information, how close do you think that we are to finally nailing Trump on these charges? I mean, any of these charges. And most importantly, if a criminal referral is made to the DOJ on Trump, Do you think that Merrick Garland has the balls and to ultimately step up and make the charge? I mean, how does the calculus change for him, if at all, if if especially if the GOP retakes the majority and shuts down the January 6th committee um, right after the midterm elections? All right. Let me try to speak to all of it in the minute we have left. You're not going to like all I have to say, but balls. Does he have the balls? No doubt. Yes, yes. And again, yes. And I've seen it. How close are we? Far. Uh, because Wait, maybe hold on. did you it, just say that you've seen it? Or that you believe? I didn't mean in the locker room. Oh, okay. But yes, I, I've seen, I, he's got, so A, he's got the, the balls for sure. He, he will do it if he thinks it's right. How far a while they are going, I think, in this methodical way, there are arguments, good arguments, Schiff and other very respectable people say under the, all these exigent circumstances, we should be leapfrogging right now. Now, Garland isn't doing that. But so but does he have the balls? Yes. How close are we far? Um, what's going to happen, though? Again, keep your again. I didn't I, I haven't said this this hour, but I've said it before. Fulton County is still you know, that I think is the most serious possibility of a criminal charge happening soon. 
Uh, and there, you know, that that's a pretty mature chart and it's straightforward. They've got the tape, et cetera. So, so it could happen there. So let's see, did I get all of it? Well, no, you get, keep oh, going. Um, you have, you have more time. You just, well, there's one more question you asked. No, no, you asked. So I, so yes, he has the, what about, the what about if in fact, it. what about if in fact that the house changes, um, in the midterm oh, oh, no, elections? Here's, yeah, no, here's the last point I wanted to make and you won't like this, but, um, the when uh, the referrals for criminal co- for contempt, the the house is technically the victim there, and that matters, and that gives extra weight to the DOJ. Here, what they're saying is we've got great evidence, and the Department of Justice will say, "Fantastic, we'll evaluate that evidence," but they won't start with a thumb on the scale in the same way because the country's the victim or whatever, as opposed to the house in particular. Well, but there's problems here in all of those answers. What are the problems? We have seen Trump time and time and time again skate past us. Let me just start. Let me just use myself as the example, because obviously I'm the most familiar with myself. And I'm speaking from reality, not somebody else's, but my own witness tampering and obstruction of justice before and after I had gone and testified, not just to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee and then the, the, um, the Senate Judiciary and then, of course, the famous House Oversight Committee where that one was live, where he yeah. sent in Matt Gates to, you know, to interfere uh, in my, with my family life, Donald Trump tweeting about me and my family, all of which were lies, right, in order to prevent me from testifying. That's called obstruction of justice. If you did that to me, you'd be in green right now. Anybody else would be witness tampering, obstruction of justice. Let's then go to the Donald Trump playbook, right, which was the unconstitutional remand of me back to Otisville, violating my First Amendment constitutional right, not stated by me, but stated by Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein, to which we have now made a dozen requests to Michael Horowitz, the OIG at the Department of Justice, the Office of the Inspector General. We can't get a single document out of them. On top of that, they're now, because I brought a lawsuit, because we want discovery, they're now moving... Right. They're now moving in order to dismiss the complaint, <laughs> claiming that um, they were all acting in the scope of their employment. Therefore, you can't sue them. And until that matter is resolved, that all discovery is halted. Now, who's the discovery of Donald Trump, Bill Barr, Michael Carvajal, former head of the um, of the Bureau of, um, of Prisons. Uh, then you have. Uh, uh, you have, um, you know, DOJ that we brought in there. This guy, Patrick McFarlane, Al- Adam Pakula, Enid Phoebus from all of there's like eight different people. We want the discovery because every time we make a request for FOIA, we get denied. I asked for it. They said because of process and, um, and methodology, they can't give it to me. The press tried to get it. They say in order to protect Michael Cohen's privacy rights, we can't give you that information. They will do anything to avoid the responsibility. Why? Because you're going to find out that the president of the United States, that fucking scumbag with that disgusting human being that was the attorney general, this complicit walrus, went ahead, decided to lure me down to 500 Pearl Street for the sole purpose of remanding me back to prison, and they didn't want me to go anywhere else. That way they'd have to try to find me and pick me up. 
You, you, you understand? And yet, this is the problem. So far, he's managed to escape everything. Taxes. We all know that he lied and cheated on the taxes. We know that his apartment is not 33,000 square feet worth $370 million, but rather it's 11,000 square feet. The idiot doesn't know how big his apartment is. Not only does he live there, he built the fucking place. We can go on with his inflation and deflation of assets. If you went ahead and gave improper information to a bank for the purpose that he did, or to insurance carriers for preferential rates, and so on, you would, again, be wearing green. But he seems to be escaping everything. So I'm not sure that the Department of Justice, or as I, my next book called Department of Injustice, that details everything we're talking about, I'm not so sure that they're going to do anything. And that's what's making the country so divisive. If they would hold him to account and make them testify, make them provide or go to prison, one or the other, I think you'd start to see better closure. Okay, so um, and I'll just say I understand, especially given your your personal experience with the man, um, I just say a couple things. Um, first is you you even in, in that in in that um uh you know account mike i think have, have stated two distinct problems there and they're both really serious one is you know the uh accountability and the other is um knowledge and transparency of all that's happened and it's a scan it's a scandal that has to be dealt with on a separate uh, on a separate plane to find out all that one two i agree uh, you know, basically, uh, I mean, it has to be facts and law, individual case. But the 45th president of the United States was a serial criminal is a serial criminal. Third, I'll just say and this would maybe this is the be the beginning of our next uh, appearance. If you invite me back. You're right. I would be in greens, but there are reasons that, you know, that that his likely guilt is the beginning and not the end of the inquiry. And, you know, things that that the our institutions, including bad OLC opinions, a lot of things we could talk about, you know, go into. But so I, I don't I, I think and I've said you know, it's it's really not a matter of proof. It's a matter of, you know, all these other things that go into the calculation. Are you going to, um, you know, try to put a former president in pinstripes? And I, well, I think I'll just try to uh, end with, I, I think, a fairly mild statement that we maybe you would even be able to endorse that, you know, that's a complicated question. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And Harry, as always, okay. of course, you're going to come back. And I want to thank you for, you know, for your <laughs> hour, for your time today. Um, and my I pleasure as always. You know, I look forward to speaking to you both uh, on the podcast and outside. You've been a tremendous help uh, to me. And I just want to thank you for coming on for everything. Thanks for inviting me. And now for today's mea culpa. Donald Trump's admission that he lost the election before a panel of Princeton historians is one of the greatest self-owns in recent memory for the former president. Nobody fumbles the ball like Trump. His record of unforced errors is unparalleled. Quite simply, the man doesn't know when to shut the fuck up. But this latest instance is somehow far richer and laden with delicious irony. For one thing, he thought he could manipulate those historians in the same way he tried to spin every author he's ever sat in front of and spill forth his lies and his bullshit. 
In Trump's mind, whatever comes out of his mouth is the gospel. History happened not as it happened, but how Donald Trump says it happened. The details are insignificant. All that matters is the man. Trump thought that he was somehow excluded from little things like facts or truth. In his mind, those historians were just to help mere employees for Trump to tip like the caddies while he cheats on his golf course. Only it didn't turn out that way. They saw through Trump in an instant. He will still go down in history as this nation's worst president. They'll see to it that the Trump legacy is forever stained. I doubt that dubious honor will ever be bestowed. So uniquely awful and toxic was the Trump presidency. The problem is, to quote Bill Murray in Meatballs, it just doesn't matter. To the legions of Trump supporters, Trump is the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus, Rambo, and Ronald Reagan wrapped into one tidy package. Whatever judgment some Ivy League eggheads pass upon their dear leader is fucking meaningless. They'll chalk it up to a plot by the elites to destroy Donald Trump. But the beauty of history is long after the MAGA mob is dead and buried, the real account of this time will persevere. The truth always comes out, maybe not when we wanted to or needed to, but the truth always finds a way. No matter what happens, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, Donald Trump will still be an asshole. And that makes me smile. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth.